You're listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. Episode 22, After the Destruction, An End or a Beginning? In the last episode, I left you with an imaginative exercise. Imagine being a Jew living in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70. How would you understand what happened? How would you continue to worship the God of Israel, who clearly calls for sacrifices? With the institutional center of the priesthood in ruins, to whom would you turn for religious guidance? Does this mark the end of an era, or merely a temporary setback to be rectified with the imminent rebuilding of the temple? Some traditional historical narratives, of course, address these questions. Here, I would just like to mention two, one that derives from Jewish and the other from Christian religious sensibilities. Traditional Jews had little trouble making sense of the destruction. Working from the assumptions about the Odyssey, found most clearly in Deuteronomy, they saw the destruction of God's house as a consequence of sin. God was not defeated. Rather, as even Josephus asserted, God found Jewish sins so distasteful that the divine presence departed, leaving the temple no holier than any other building. With the destruction of the temple came the practical end of the priesthood and the rise of the rabbis, the successors of the Pharisees, who quickly asserted religious authority. They were the true interpreters of God's word, found in scripture, quite broadly understood, and it was to them that the Jews turned for religious guidance. The temple continued to hold a central place in rabbinic and Jewish thought, but as a symbol rather than as a reality, a symbol of hope deferred to the Messianic age, when through God's intervention the temple would be rebuilt in a new world. In the meantime, though, we live in a world without a temple and sacrifices, in which other religious practices serve as substitutes prayer and good deeds, for example. For shorthand, I'm going to refer to this as the Jewish narrative. The traditional Christian narrative begins with similar assumptions. Yes, Israel sinned and God left. The sin, though, is different. Whereas Josephus located Israel's sin along a broad spectrum of despicable acts against humans and God, The earliest Christian writings identify the sin as the rejection of Jesus as the preordained Messiah. Of all people, the Jews should have known better. God did abandon Israel, but this time, unlike in the Jewish narrative, God did not just abandon the temple to punish Israel for her sins, but in fact rejected the Jews. God now had a new Israel, the church, who would slightly later call themselves Christians. It is not that Jews had no hope. Paul's writings on God's continuing relationships with the Jews are famously difficult to untangle. But later Christian writers more clearly understood that the Jews continued to serve a theological role, primarily as keepers of the Old Testament, as it now became to be known. Judaism in this understanding then became a religion of the Hebrew Bible, stuck in useless antiquity. This Christian narrative asserts that the destruction of the temple marked a most definitive milestone in God's relationship to Israel. The truth or value of the theological assertions that underlie these narratives, 
both implicitly and explicitly, are well outside the scope of this podcast. I raise them, though, for two reasons. First, these are framed as historical narratives, and we can critically assess the historical claims, if not the theological ones. Second, they emphasize that in religious contexts, history can have theological meaning. The traditional Jewish and Christian understandings of God as a God who acts in history make it difficult for many to separate history and theology. This returns us to the issue raised in the very first episode on the intersection of faith and reason, and an issue to which I'll return later in this episode. Let's turn now, though, to history and the questions that I raised at the very beginning of the episode. One obvious preliminary point to make is that the destruction of the temple would have affected you differently depending on where you lived. If you were a Jewish resident of Jerusalem or lived nearby, your relationship with the temple was more immediate, both civilly and religiously. The temple was the central economic engine and political institution of the region. And on a very practical level, you would certainly have had some contact with it. You would also likely participate in its rites and visit it frequently, on pilgrimage holidays certainly, but also for small private offerings. My child gets sick, I pray, and the child recovers. A small Thanksgiving sacrifice would be in order. How many such Jews would have fallen into this category? Our knowledge of such numbers is very sketchy. According to Josephus, who almost always plays with his numbers, Jerusalem swelled to a population of some two million people during Passover. Remember also that he claims that about 100,000 Jews were taken captive when the Romans finally took Jerusalem. Can we count a million in this category, plus or minus 50%? This is also the group, of course, that was decimated during the war. But what if you lived further away, say in Babylonia? Jews had lived in Babylonia since the time of the exile in 586 BCE although we don't know very much about their community for the six centuries between then and the destruction of the temple. Certainly, the temple would have had a different meaning to them than it did to the residents of Jerusalem. To the extent that it, or more accurately its precursor, the tabernacle, plays such an important role in Scripture and the Torah, one imagines that it would have been a powerful symbol. At the same time, though, few Babylonian Jews would have actually seen it. The trip was not only lengthy, but it went over a political and cultural border, from the Parthian to the Roman empires and back again. The destruction of the temple in this community would have had little practical impact. Between these poles were many Jewish communities that lay close enough for an occasional trip to the temple, although one imagines that these trips would not have been frequent. Moving outward, we can point to the Galilee, Alexandria, Asia Minor, Rome. Again, we know little about how these communities responded to the temple's destruction. It is telling that centuries later, in the third and fourth centuries, Jewish mosaics and epitaphs in many of these communities displayed temple implements, such as the menorah and incense shovel. These symbols became important markers of Jewish identity. This, though, does not mean that their Jewish creators mourned the temple's destruction in any straightforward, practical way. Philo had an allegorical understanding of the temple. 
although located not far away in Alexandria, and having the resources that would not have made it difficult for him to visit, Philo may have visited the temple just once, and even this is debatable. For Philo, as for many other Jews, the temple's importance was more symbolic than practical. The point of this brief survey is merely to suggest that different Jewish communities would have responded differently to the destruction of the temple, due simply to their physical distance from it. There was no singular Jewish response to the destruction of the temple. Judaism did not respond to the temple's destruction. Jews did, though, and they did so in a variety of ways. Here again, I can only briefly sketch some of these responses. For some Jews, particularly in Judea, quite frankly, a version of the Christian argument would have been compelling. Remember that if we look at the temple through the eyes of Jews in antiquity, we must also take into account not just the temple's representation in traditional Jewish texts, but also of a wider cultural context. Roman cities often contained a forum, and it was there that the temples to the city's gods were placed. This was the primary location where citizens participated in the public cult, and as a result, the form also became the center of political and economic activity. The Jerusalem temple certainly had this dimension. It was the location of the public cult, the house of the Judean god. For at least some Jews, and despite the two fine theological distinctions that Josephus makes, an obvious implication of the destruction of the temple was that God was defeated. God had indeed abandoned Israel, perhaps not due to their rejection of Jesus or for the emerging Christians, but abandoned them nonetheless. For these Jews, the trauma would have been the most severe. It is worth remembering, though, that the destruction of the temple in 70 was not unprecedented. The temple was destroyed before, some 600 years earlier. The time differential is enormous and should not be underestimated. It is as if today we seriously turned for an historical explanation of a contemporary event to 1400. Also, the situation is only somewhat parallel. The Babylonians destroyed the only religious institution of the Israelites. This, though, brings us to the heart of the matter. To understand this later destruction in 70, the Jews did not simply remember the stories of the first destruction orally passed down over more than half a millennium. They turned to their holy book. It is in the Bible, a resource that was unavailable to their Israelite ancestors, that they found ways for responding to this latest tragedy. Just as the Israelite temple was destroyed for their sins and then rebuilt, so too would history repeat itself. This at least takes the edge off the trauma. And so many, probably most Jews, would have thought that the destruction of the temple in 70 was neither a beginning nor an end. It was a pause an anomalous period that God would soon write when reconciled with his people. There is, in fact, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that Jews, both in the Galilee and beyond, fully expected that the temple would soon be rebuilt. A Jewish uprising outside of Palestine in 117 CE, 47 years after the destruction of the temple, appears to have had a messianic character, perhaps connected to a desire to rebuild the temple. Just 15 years later, in 132 CE, an uprising in Palestine, the Bar Kokhba Revolt, 
had more obvious aspirations for the liberation of Jerusalem from the Romans and presumably the rebuilding of the temple. As I mentioned earlier, temple imagery continued to appear in Jewish art for centuries. In 363, the Emperor Julian, nicknamed by his Christian enemies the Apostate, actually allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple. Only Julian's premature death probably prevented the building of the third temple at that time. According to Christian sources, well into the 4th century, Jews would visit the site of the destroyed temple on the holiday of Tisha B'Av, the commemoration of its first and now second destruction in order to mourn. In this respect, Jews were more Roman and Greek than they were Christian. The early Christians began with a symbolic notion of sacrifice rather than a physical one. But all other religious communities in the Mediterranean basin at that time had difficulty of conceiving of worship of a deity that did not involve sacrifice. Jews, too. They did not think that anything had ontologically changed, only that they were presently unable to worship God as they ought. If most Jews did reason somewhat along these lines, then it is unlikely that they would have turned to a new set of religious authorities, the rabbis, immediately after the destruction. Indeed, it would suggest that they maintained their high regard for the priests. Although the priests no longer had a platform to sacrifice, they could continue to live in local communities and accept gifts on behalf of God, serving as intermediaries. Much modern research suggests that this, in fact, was the case. Unlike the Jewish narrative presented above, the rabbis may have begun as an inchoate movement around this time, but they did not rise as communal leaders then. From the third century on, the rabbis would attempt to assume religious leadership roles, although they were not really successful until centuries later. The story of the rabbis, their ideas and literature, and their recreation of what it meant to be Jewish deserves its own podcast series. Maybe it will be my next. In any event, for Jews at some distance from the temple, the temple's destruction would have come as a shock, but it would not have significantly altered life's daily texture. These Jews had already developed a self-understanding and practices that appeared to them as pious, and they would have seen no reason to change them. While we do not have enough information to recover these in great detail, I do think that there are three broad categories of inquiry through which we can get at least some idea of how Jews understood their identity and piety. This is a model that I develop more fully and in more detail up to the modern time in my book, Creating Judaism, History, Tradition, Practice. But here, I just want to lay out the major issues. First, Jews would have thought of themselves as part of historical ethnicity bound to each other through the common ancient story told in Scripture. We discussed in a previous episode how Jewish identity in antiquity was fluid. Most Jews were not visibly identifiable, and the legal norms later developed by the rabbis that would govern halachically Jewish identity did not exist. Just as non-Jews could identify themselves as Jewish to various degrees, so too could one born of Jewish parents opt out, as it were, living among and identifying with non-Jews. 
the case of Tiberius Julius Alexander comes to mind, Philo's nephew, who served as the Roman procurator of Egypt and accompanied Titus in his siege of Jerusalem. For Jewish women, as it would be in Central Europe in the 19th century, that fluidity of identity was probably even easier. Only the imposition by the Romans of a Jewish tax in the time of Titus, and especially its strengthening by Domitian, would have given the empire a stake in Jewish identity. And this may have been a catalyst for Jews to begin to develop their own norms of identity in the second and third centuries. So without legal norms, what made a Jew? Family, community, and tradition, certainly. But just as importantly, self-identity. Individual Jews identified with a larger community, an imagined community, as the historian Benedict Anderson might call it, bound together by a common ancestry and historical experience. But from where would they know that they had a common ancestor and historical experience? This brings me to the second category, scripture. Jews shared a devotion to their holy books. These books, especially the Torah, were both a source of norms and a formative historical identity. In Greek and Roman terms, they amalgamated myth and constitution. Jewish identity made no sense without scripture in this environment. We have seen that like identity, Scripture, too, through antiquity, was somewhat fluid. Books like Enoch, Jubilees, and the Temple Scroll challenge our conventional notions of a canon. Books such as these were produced even at the time of the fall of the Temple. Let me focus on one of these books in order to bring a much larger issue into relief. As you might remember, near the beginning of this podcast, I devoted an episode to Ezra, who introduced the Torah to those living in Jerusalem shortly after they built the Second Temple. Ezra became more than a historical figure. He was a literary trope through antiquity. Jews wrote several pseudepigraphical books of Ezra. One of these books, now called the Fourth Book of Ezra, was probably written about 100 CE and purports to describe the prophetic visions that Ezra had, most of which dealt with the reasons for the destruction of the temple and the promise of messianic redemption. Fourth Ezra thus does not break any new literary ground. In previous episodes, we have also discussed pseudepigraphy, theological issues, and apocalyptic prophecies in Jewish texts produced throughout this period. What interests me is the contrast between the biblical Ezra and the Ezra of Fourth Ezra, the biblical Ezra was straightforward and political. He comes across as a man of action attempting to cajole and hector the Judeans in Jerusalem to accept a new constitution, that of Scripture. This new Ezra, though, assumes the knowledge of Scripture. The visions and prophecies flow from the authority of Scripture. For we who have received the law and sinned will perish, as well as our heart which received it, the author of 4th Ezra laments after a fast, referring anachronistically to the destruction of the Second Temple. But, he continues, the law does not perish, but remains in its glory. The law, the Torah, persists, and when Israel returns to it, so will God restore the glory of Zion. My point is that while in one sense we have traced a full circle 
from destruction of the first temple to the second, we are now in a very different place. Scripture is now the acknowledged source of divine authority and will. It is not the only thing, but probably the most important, in identifying the difference between Israelite religion prior to the first temple's destruction and Judaism, which emerged after the second temple was rebuilt. The third category is practice. Scripture contains norms, but many of these norms are hardly self-evident. Jewish families and communities understood them differently, and many local practices developed. Despite this diversity, there were three practices, largely construed, that many authors in antiquity, Jewish and non-Jewish, recognized as being of overwhelming importance to Jews. The first was male circumcision, which was not unique to Jews in antiquity. The second was the observance of the Sabbath. We have seen repeatedly that Jews received exemptions from their overlords so that they need not work on the Sabbath. The Roman satirists mocked the Jews for their laziness on the Sabbath. Finally, the Jewish avoidance of pork, which again the Romans found particularly strange and amusing. All of these practices have a basis in Scripture, but precisely how they were observed was largely a matter of interpretation and local tradition. In this sense, the rabbinic project was continuous. The rabbis, a small group of elite and literate men, continued to develop methods, some of them new, for the interpretation of Scripture. In addition to deriving new legal norms from Scripture, they codified the Jewish legal practices that were already there. Yet the rabbis were also creators. Over the next few centuries, they developed new forms of literature, such as the Mishnah, Midrash, and the Talmud, that would supplement Scripture as authoritative Jewish texts in conversation with each other. And the resources in these texts would drive the development from the Judaism of the Second Temple period to that of today. So was the destruction a beginning, an end, or neither? On a multiple choice test, you might answer all of the above. And so with that entirely insufficient historical summary, let me return to another issue that I raised earlier in both this podcast and in this episode. I began this podcast ruminating on the relationship between faith and reason, particularly at a time when the issue has once again engendered a heated public discourse. My intention was not to solve this long-standing problem. What I do hope to have done, though, is to have shown implicitly and imperfectly that the critical study of religious history has value even to those who have theological commitments. It need not be a case of either or, of accepting reason or theology. I hope that those listeners who have theological commitments have found in these episodes ideas and approaches that are personally enriching. At the same time, and in the same way, I have taken religion seriously and hope that those listeners with no theological commitments, or indeed even anti-theological commitments, have also found these ideas and approaches enriching. I truly believe and hope that this has come across in this podcast, that religion is serious business that reflects human wrestling with conditions that are both historically specific as well as universal. The goal for these listeners is not to prove religion correct or wrong, 
but to acknowledge with some humility that many of our ancestors have struggled with many of the same questions and issues that we face, and that maybe we can learn something from them. I want to conclude this podcast series with a personal reflection. Over the year that I've developed this series and have told professional colleagues what I was doing, they inevitably asked two questions. Why would you do this? And can you make any money off of it? As I explained in the first episode, I wanted to develop this podcast primarily out of a deep conviction that there was a need for such an approach. I truly believe that such academic knowledge should not be confined either to dry journals or to expensive courses produced for profit, but that free and accessible podcasts such as these have a value in our society. I was also attracted by the element of experimentation. I wanted to test out my ideas, as well as podcasting itself, as a mode for the dissemination of knowledge, and even as a pedagogical tool for use in my classes. As many of you probably recognize, this podcast falls a bit between the cracks of the genre. It is the kind of scripted lectures that you might expect to find in a course that you would purchase. Except, of course, that it's free. Some of you access this podcast through an academic platform, iTunes U, yet unlike most such podcasts, it is not simply a recording of lectures made for a classroom or university setting. So what is this podcast? And is there really a niche for it? I still wonder about this, as do many of my colleagues. Whether or not others or I develop further podcasts in this model depends on the answer to this question, an answer that only you can provide. I did not produce this podcast in order to make money. At the same time, you should know that while it cost me little monetarily to make these episodes, it did require an enormous investment of time. And this was uncompensated time. I received no money or other compensation to make these episodes, as my wife has pointed out to me several times. So here's yet another experiment. I have added a button to my blog at msatlow.blogspot.com. It is on the left near the top, and it is entitled, Please Consider Supporting This Podcast. Clicking the button brings you to PayPal, a secure site where you can use or create a PayPal account or simply use a credit card. Even a modest contribution, such as 50 cents an episode, half the price of a four-minute song bought from iTunes, would be greatly appreciated. In any event, though, I hope that you have learned from and enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I have in making it. So, for the last time, you have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler. The original music was by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical support has been provided by the Instructional Technology Group at Brown University. For more information and to make a contribution, please go to msatlow.blogspot.com. As always, I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.